Hello and welcome to the Traveling Historian Podcast. My name is Casey and I am the Traveling Historian. Now just as a reminder before we get started that I do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash traveling historian so that way you can help continue this podcast and bring history to more people and have people have fun. And also if you would like to follow me on Twitter at Augustus underscore underscore Casey, that's also appreciated. Helps drive up views for the podcast and that's always appreciated. Now, our topic for this time is going to be Julius Caesar, the man who would be dictator. And just to give some background into the Rome that Julius Caesar will grow up in, let's have at it. Now, Roman society is primarily divided into two family groups, essentially. We have the plebeians, who you probably hear uh, slang-wise is calling people plebs. Uh, This comes from the Roman plebeians. These are the lower classes. And the patricians, who are the noble houses. The important thing to know about this division is that it's purely based on birth. So the patricians are ancient families. You are either born into them or you're not. So you could be incredibly rich, but if you are not part of a patrician family, you will not be a patrician. You could be the wealthiest plebeian and be wealthier than some of the families in the patrician class. You are not a patrician, though. And that division is very hard set, and the Romans like to keep it that way. Now, Caesar is born to a patrician family, the nice round number of 100 BC, to the Julia family, who claim lineage back to the son of the legendary hero Aeneas of Troy. Now, if you've ever seen the movie Troy with Brad Pitt, uh, at the end of the film, Orlando Bloom's character of Paris, he hands the sword of Troy to a young man who's fleeing the city, and this is Aeneas, the... So the descendant of Aeneas is sent to reclaim the city of Troy, essentially, and his ancestor ends up founding Rome, at least according to Roman legend. As a side fact for this, Greeks ended up founding Carthage, who would become one of Rome's greatest enemies. And so the Romans saw it almost as a replay of the Trojan War between the Romans, who were the new Trojans, and the Carthaginians, who essentially were the new Greeks. Now, back to Julius Caesar. His family wasn't especially influential for most of his existence, but by the time of Caesar's birth, his family was enjoying a mild revival. His father, who was also named Gaius Julius Caesar, was the governor of Asia. Now, when we say Asia, we don't obviously mean the entire continent of Asia. The Roman province of Asia is what is today Western Turkey. And his aunt Julia married Gaius Marius, who himself was a famous Roman general and politician in the Republic. His mother, Aurelia Cotta, also came from an influential family. So Caesar at his birth has a lot of influential people in his life, and that helps his family out greatly. And at the age of 16, in 85 BC, and I'll throw out his age at certain dates just to remind you of how old he is and just to give you a reminder of how old this guy is throughout his life, so that way I'm not just throwing random dates at you and you have to do the math. Now, at the age of 16... His father dies suddenly, and this makes Caesar the head of his household at the age of 16, when his uncle Marius is actually involved in a civil war against one of his political rivals, Lucius Cornelius Sulla. And the two of them will go back and forth and trade blows during the civil war, and Sulla will famously make lists of his enemies to either kill, exile, or discredit them. During the meantime... Caesar is nominated to be the Flamen Dialis, uh, which is a Roman position that was the high priest of Jupiter, which he was able to attain during his uncle's control of Rome. So as you can imagine, his uncle's sway over the city helped him get that position. 
and he was married to Cornelia, the daughter of Marius' political ally. So Marius is setting himself up to make sure that he has loyal subjects, essentially. And not only is Caesar just a family member to him, but family members can go sour real quick if you're not careful. And so Marius is hedging his bets. Sulla does end up gaining victory in the Civil War, and he takes control of the city of Rome. And being the nephew of your chief rival, Caesar is immediately on one of those lists that I mentioned earlier. And he is stripped of his inheritance, he is stripped of his wife's dowry, and his priesthood. And so Caesar is out of money. However, he refused to divorce his wife, which was another condition of Sulla's punishment to him. And in order to avoid Sulla punishing him more severely, he goes into hiding. But the intervention by his mother's family, who, as I mentioned before, is quite influential still in Rome, lifted that threat on his life. And Sulla would bitterly, one can imagine, give some recognition and praise to Caesar, comparing him to Marius, saying that he could see some of Marius in Caesar. Without the restrictions of the priesthood on Caesar, which were actually quite strenuous, that you could not touch a horse, you could not sleep three days out of your bed, or sleep one day out of the city of Rome, or lay eyes on an army as a priest in of Jupiter, you can imagine that kind of really hampers your political aspirations and the, that extend beyond the city itself. Now, without the restrictions of the priesthood, thanks to Sulla, Caesar is able to pursue a military career at the age of 17 or 18. Also, this conveniently helps him kind of stay out of Sulla's way and avoid him from doing anything else that might put him on Sulla's bad side. And he serves with distinction in Anatolia, so in Turkey, and he actually receives the civic crown, which is a Roman military award for saving a fellow soldier during a siege. And essentially the award is saying that you rescued a citizen from harm's way in a battle. So Caesar receives this honor, This and it's a really high honor. It's almost the second highest honor that a Roman soldier can receive. So he makes a name for himself quite early on, and he's sent on a myth mission to Bithynia, which is in northern Turkey, it's a kingdom, to try and secure the support of King Nicomedes, uh, who is a powerful king in the area and especially wants control of his fleet to help the Roman cause there. But there's some, some rumors that swirl because Caesar stays for a long period of time, and it kind of leads to the rumors that Caesar had an affair with the king. Um, leading some to call him the Queen of Bithynia, and soldiers later on in his political rivals would come up with a nice little catchy phrase that they would say, Caesar laid the Gauls low, Nicomedes laid Caesar low. And to make this clear, this isn't a criticism of Caesar potentially having a homosexual relationship, period. It's more that Caesar's on the receiving end of that relationship, because as we've talked about with Alexander the Great before, homosexuality and bisexuality and all those characterizations that we think of today weren't the same back then. And bisexuality was something extremely common, especially among the upper classes. What was controversial was being seen as being on the receiving end of that relationship. It was seen as a power situation. So if Caesar was the one that was the older one and Nicomedes was the younger one, people probably would not have had a problem with Caesar doing that. That being said, Caesar completely denies those rumors throughout his life. So whether that was an invention by his political rivals and some jeering on the part of his soldiers, uh, or it was truth, we don't know. Caesar, like I said, has this nice stunning little military career in Anatolia. 
eventually, though, Sulla dies in 78 BC when Caesar is about 22. So he's been in, on military campaigns for about four years at this point. And Caesar feels comfortable returning home now that the man who would have him killed, most likely, is gone. And if we remember before, those restrictions that Sulla put on Caesar taking his everything, essentially, all his money, his wealth, and his wife's dowry, his inheritance, all of that, puts Caesar into some financial difficulties and means that he can only purchase a home in Subara, which is a district in Rome that's a lower-class district and essentially the red-light district of Rome at the time. So Caesar, despite having this noble family, this noble lineage, he's living in basically a slum. (laughs) And you would be surprised that this guy who's not had the greatest of luck ends up here, and if you were to say, oh, that guy right there living above the brothel essentially is going to become some great hero, people might not have thought they probably would have laughed at you. (laughs) He begins a legal career as a means of trying to recoup some money and some prestige, and he actually becomes really well known for his oratory skills um, and his ruthless pursuit of corrupt governors, so this kind of puts him uh, in the mind of a lot of Roman politicians. And at the age of 25... Caesar was voyaging across the Aegean Sea, so near Greece, and he was kidnapped by pirates. And the pirates, this is one of my favorite stories of Caesar, that Caesar, again, he's about 25, so he's not young, but he's not seasoned either at this point. And the pirates make a ransom demand, and Caesar mocks them and says that this is insulting how little that they've asked for him. And so the pirates say, okay, well, demand more then. (laughs) They're happy to accommodate this. And while Caesar's associates are going essentially relaying this information to his family and people that would pay the ransom for him, Caesar doesn't act like a captive at all. He will write poetry and make the pirates listen to him recite his poetry and his plays. He will exercise with them and act like he is not a captive at all of them. And eventually, the people come through with the ransom money. And before he leaves, he says, oh, by the way, before I leave, I'm going to raise a fleet come capture all of you and crucify you all. And they kind of go, yeah, sure, whatever, buddy. And Caesar leaves, and he follows through on his threat. And even though he's a private citizen, he's not a member of the government, he's able to raise his own fleet of essentially mercenaries. He successfully does track down all the pirates that he had captured, crucifies all of them, but as a sign of mercy, he has their throats slit (laughs) before they die from crucifixion. And for those of you who don't know, as a as weird as it is to say, fun fact about crucifixion. Uh, most of the time when you die from crucifixion is due to suffocation as you're unable to breathe properly and your body essentially goes into shock that way. So there's that. And so Caesar, he has followed through on his threat. He showed that he's a man capable of doing this at this young age. And he returns to Rome where he is elected military tribune. And in 69 BC, so the time he's 31, he's elected as Castor, which is another Roman position. And in 65 BC, he rules as Curul Edil. And these are positions within the Roman government that are elected yearly. So he's holding offices every year, but he has to be elected each time because these term limits are only for one-year periods. And the reason that these positions aren't for longer periods is because before in Rome's history the Romans were ruled over by kings. And so once the kings were overthrown, the Romans became deeply paranoid about anyone becoming a king again. So they set up some pretty ridiculous things in terms of trying to limit people's power. 
so that way they wouldn't have enough authority to make themselves king. So, for example, making one-year term limits for positions. Now, when he's elected to these positions, he is going to be serving in the Roman provinces in Spain. This is where we have a story of Caesar essentially breaking down and crying at the feet of a statue of Alexander the Great and laments how he had failed to make an impact like Alexander had by his age, that Caesar had essentially achieved nothing, whereas Alexander had made the world kneel before him. And so it's a picture of this scene that there's a 30-some-odd-year-old man crying at the feet of a 20-year-old man that he has not nearly achieved what he has in his life. And so Caesar already sets himself out to want to achieve more. And so in 65 BC, he is elected a cruel ideal who presides over public buildings, and he actually uses the opportunity to throw lavish festivals for him, uh, not for himself, but just in general, and some games which earn him great popularity among the people. Because what the Roman people love most of all are bread and circuses, and he throws them and he gains a lot of public support for himself. And in 63 BC, two years later, he will run for Pontificus Maximus, which is the chief priest of the Roman state religion. And he will win the office despite running against two well-seasoned politicians. There are massive allegations of bribery from all sides, so it was not a clean race. Just because the Romans wanted to avoid a king did not mean they were averse to playing dirty. And as a fun fact for the Pontificus Maximus uh, title, this is actually a title that the Pope in Rome for the Roman Catholic Church carries to, to this day. So Caesar runs for this position, which even though it sounds it's a religious position, essentially it still carries a lot of political weight. And he will use that office to gain himself popularity. And he will serve as Praetor in 62 BC, the next year. So again, these one-year term limits. So even though he's out of office, he's running for the next thing. And then he would go on to govern the province of Hispania Ulterior, which is essentially southeastern Spain. But before he left, he needed to satisfy some creditors who he owed large debts to. Because remember, Caesar had all his money taken from him. So even working as a rather successful lawyer and government office position, he had not gained enough money to pay off those he owed his debts to. And in the Roman system, you couldn't really be charged with a crime if you were holding public office because it was seen... Because again, if your office is only for one year, charges and all of that stuff would be kind of a distraction. So what lawmakers and... No, there's no police at the time, but what people would be able to do is they would have to wait until you became a private citizen again to be able to arrest you on these charges. So Caesar needs to satisfy these creditors somehow before he can leave for his province. And this is where he turns to a man named Marcus Licinius Crassus, who is himself a wealthy noble, who actually agrees to pay off most of Caesar's debts for him and basically act as a guarantor for the rest of his debts he doesn't pay off for the creditors to be satisfied in return for Caesar's political support against a a rival of Crassus's named Pompey, who will be a character that comes back later on. So with that kind of settled, Caesar quickly leaves before his immunity from prosecutions was up and thus avoiding potential problems in him getting to his new office. Caesar will win great renown in Spain for his military leadership. He will actually subdue a couple of tribes that are hostile to Rome there. And he's proclaimed imperator by his troops, which is a title that essentially, for lack of a better descriptor term, is saying that 
he has done a great job at being a leader. And that doesn't sound necessarily super important, but it's a necessary honor if he hopes to have a triumph, which is a military parade that's held in the city of Rome by the Imperator, by that general. And the reason it's so important is because Given Rome's aversion to kings, it is actually illegal for you to have armed troops under your command in the city of Rome, that you could not enter the city with troops because they didn't want you taking power and seizing it through armed revolt. A triumph, however, is the only occasion in which you can do so. It's to hold it, you in honor and show what a capable commander you are. That's the only occasion in which you are able to bring your military into the city. And in order to even qualify for a triumph, your troops have to proclaim you imperador, which you then submit your request to the Senate, who will then choose to approve your request for a triumph or not. Caesar wants to run for Rome's highest office, which is consul. And there's actually two consuls, which we'll get into in a minute. But Caesar wants to run for that office, the highest office in Rome. But Roman law forbades him from celebrating a triumph and running for consul in the same year. Because they, again, don't want you to bring your soldiers into the city where you can harass or just take the, the seat of power yourself. And so Caesar's faced with this kind of dramatic choice where he can either accept this high honor of a military triumph or run for office. And so Caesar decides that running for consulship is more important than running for the triumph. Which is a, is a pretty smart decision on his part. Because a triumph is temporary, it'll give you kind of a temporary political boost, but having the consulship, that's a big step up in power. So for in 60 BC, when Caesar is 40, Caesar sought the position for consul for the following year, in 59 BC. So he's essentially running for office in 60 BC to assume office in 59. Think about how presidential elections work, where even though the next election for president's in 2020... Whoever wins the presidency won't be sworn in until 2021. It's the same thing here. And he will run it for this office against two other opponents. And despite, again, heavy underhandedness by all parties, of which even Cato the Younger, the famous orator, uh, participates in, Caesar wins the office along with a conservative politician named Marcus Bilbulus. And he'll come back a little bit in the future. He's already in debt to Crassus, who again is still in the picture at this point, um, for his earlier support of Caesar. Now, you can't just have someone pay your debts and then not owe them something. And Caesar had already made attempts to ally himself with Pompey because even though Crassus doesn't like Pompey, Pompey is someone who has earned great renown as a politician and especially as a military leader. And so he's extremely influential among the Roman Senate, among the Roman nobles, among the people of Rome. So securing his support or his friendship would be an incredible political boon for Caesar. And he, Caesar actually manages to fix relations between the two men, between Crassus and Pompey. And between the, two, the, the three of them, they essentially have effective control over a large number of the institutions in Rome because Crassus is a wealthy businessman. He has control of a lot of businesses. Pompey more or less has the loyalty of the armies and a lot of the people in the Senate. And Caesar is in the highest office in the land. So these tr this trio forms what's called the First Triumvirate, which is this personal alliance between the three men. To cement this, uh, and kind of guarantee it as an insurance policy, but as a show of faith, Pompey marries Caesar's daughter, Julia, and 
Pompey's actually much older than Caesar, so it's a little strange, but political alliances and all. So Pompey marries Caesar's daughter, and Caesar marries Calpurnia, who is the daughter of another prominent senator. Caesar will introduce a law that would actually redistribute public lands to the poor and to intimidate political opponents. Uh, Pompey will move troops into the city. And when uh, Bibulus, the other consul, will attempt to disagree with Caesar on this move because this angers a lot of rich politicians because they don't want their share of land being distributed to the poor peasants. He's actually driven from from the forum, the political center from in Rome, by Caesar's supporters who broke the symbols of his authority, which are the fasces, uh, which are bundles of sticks with an axe in the middle of it to represent not only penal authority and in the legal sense in the form of the sticks, but also military authority in the form of the axe. And this is actually something that if you look at the U.S. government, you can actually see the symbol of the fasces in... I think it's either the House of Representatives or in the Senate offices. You can see it. Um, It's a symbol that's adopted by different types of governments later on. But they break those symbols. Uh, They injure a couple of his aides and actually assault him by dumping feces on his head. And so Bibulus is kind of out of the picture from this point on. He kind of stays in his home and groans and mumbles about Caesar from the rest of this term. But doesn't really do much after that kind of show of force by Caesar and Pompey. And going back to the position of consul itself, the reason that there are two of them is to provide a series of checks and balances on the other. And in theory, at least, uh, command of the army would switch day to day between the two of them. And this leads to a whole host of problems previously when Rome fights Carthage, which we won't go into now. But as you can imagine, that system gets pretty convoluted, but again, speaks to the Romans intense fear and hatred of the possibility of a king so they're willing to essentially hamstring their own political effort to avoid that possibility however if you're caesar you just bully the guy until he stays in his home all year long and it's not really a problem at that point roman satires would actually refer to his term of consulship as that of julius and caesar (laughs) uh after serving his term which again is only for a year he will serve as proconsul, which is essentially what we would think of as a governor, over the province of northern Italy and southern France, and he would be given the command of four legions. Now, this is customary to give a former consul the governorship, because essentially what it's seen is essentially extending their term as consul, which is the Romans kind of check for the convolutity of the nature of the consul system. So it's essentially saying, okay, we don't want to waste your whole term of office, so we'll just give you this semi-lower position to continue your work, just in a reduced capacity. So like I said, Caesar is given the territories that, to the Romans, are known as Cisalpine Gaul, uh, which is in northern Italy, and Transalpine Gaul, which is in southern France, and Illyricum, which is where Yugoslavia will form in the future. We have the borders of Croatia... It's on the opposite side of the Adriatic Sea from Italy. So Caesar's given a pretty good chunk size of territory to command and governor over. And he's given the command of, like I said, four legions. And each of these legions roughly numbers about 5,000 men. So Caesar, under his governorship, has about 20,000 men under his command. Ordinarily, though, when you are assigned the position of proconsul, this governor position, it's normally set for one year, much like the other offices in Rome. 
However, thanks to his political allies with Pompey and Crassus, they're able to set his term for proconsul for five years. So he's already leveraging this advantage. And even though he has held numbers of offices, including the consul position, Caesar is still in debt (laughs) to creditors. But the governorship offers him numerous means of alleviating that stress, mainly because he borders aggressive territories, which he can use to exploit wealth, uh, whereas other provinces might not allow for that. And that is what Caesar does. Uh, There have been a number of tribes in Gaul, which is modern day France and Belgium to a degree. And these are ruled over by the Celts, who are hundreds of tribes so it's not in any way a unified system at all and so caesar's territories border gaul and for the longest time in roman history the gauls were the traditional enemy of rome in the past they had sacked rome itself and so they were pretty much the boogeyman of rome and the romans hated them and so around this time a few years before caesar takes this proconsul position that roman allied tribes had been defeated by a combination of their rivals in Gaul, as well as Germanic tribes that had crossed over the Rhine to help out these other Germanic uh, groups and Celtic groups against those Roman allies. And so Caesar uses this as an excuse to raise two new legions, in addition to his already four. So he essentially already has 20,000 men. He raises another 10,000 and marches into Gaul to defeat that threat. As you can understand, these other Gaelic tribes see this as a threat and begin to arm themselves in just in case Caesar decides to come knocking. Caesar, learning about this, says, ah, this is my perfect opportunity to use that as a form of aggression and I'm going to take them out now. So these people preparing for Caesar end up giving Caesar the perfect excuse to come after them and he begins to conquer these tribes one by one because they aren't allying with each other and if they are, it's in too small of numbers to oppose Caesar and the legions. So Caesar is taking tribes one by one by one, going through Gaul. And it'll actually bring him to the northern coast of France in 58 BC, when he's about 42. And political upheaval at home will actually threaten to undo his political alliance uh, with the other with Crassus and Pompey. So the triumvirs will meet in the spring of 56 BC as a kind of, all right, let's kind of hash out our relationship here. Let's make sure we're not going to start fighting each other. And they renew their alliance, um, and they have Caesar's governorship continue for another five years. So Caesar's getting a good end of this deal, and the reason that the the relationship between these three is kind of deteriorating is because they're not too happy with Caesar kind of gaining all this notoriety for himself and gaining this fame of conquering the Gauls, who, again, the Romans don't like. So Caesar's making a name for himself as not only a capable politician, but a military leader and as someone who's ensuring the security of Rome. And Pompey and Crassus are worried that that might make Caesar a little bit too big for his britches. However, that lengthening of his term of service ensures that Caesar can continue his campaigns, and in 55 BC, he repels another group of Germanic tribes that cross over the Rhine, and Caesar will do something that's never been done before in Roman history. He will cross the Rhine into Germany. And there are no bridges that cross the Rhine. Most of the time, and most of the time through history, what you'll see leaders do is they will make essentially rafts to ferry their troops across the river. Caesar says, that's not good enough. That's not, that's not a strong enough statement for me and for Rome. 
And so what he has his soldiers do is build a bridge from nothing to cross the Rhine. And to give you an idea of just how big a feat we're talking about, the length of this bridge, and I'm going to give the measurements in a couple different units so that way we're able to understand it. Uh, the bridge, depending on where it was built, because we don't know the exact site, it could have been anywhere between 140 and 400 meters long, which is between 460 and 1300 feet. And the Rhine River is an aggressive river. So this is not like some lazy river that they're building us across. This is an engineering marvel. And the bridge between anywhere between seven to nine meters wide, which is about 23 to 30 feet. And the river, which is pretty steady throughout depth wise, is 9.1 meters deep, which is 30 feet deep. So the Romans under Caesar build this bridge to cross the Rhine River and march their legions across the river. And you can only imagine what it must have looked like to a Germanic tribesman who would have been watching this whole feat happening across the river and then have Caesar complete the bridge and then march his armies across. Rather than boating them across, which most people would do, he marches across and he'll spend a couple weeks essentially just walking around in Germania and Germany to make a statement. And then after they are done, they walk across the bridge and destroy the whole bridge. Because the message that Caesar wanted to send was that Rome can go anywhere. Not only Rome, but Caesar will go anywhere that I please, essentially. And this is a huge publicity piece back in Rome. When that news reaches that a Roman crossed over into Germany, it's huge. And it makes Caesar almost this legendary figure that he had done this feat. And not only that, but in the... The years of 55 and 54 BC, Caesar will actually make two landings in Britain, which if Germany was kind of this final frontier area, this mysterious land, Britain is almost like way beyond that. It's this land. No one really knows what's over there. They know there are people. It's not like here be dragons, but no one really was there. And so when Caesar makes two landings in Britain, he's making another show of force here. And he tries his hand at trying to subjugate the British tribes. But it doesn't succeed for a myriad of reasons. He makes a little bit more headway on the second go about it. Secures the loyalty of a few tribes, but then leaves. And he won't go back. And the Roman, those tribes won't become Roman territory. And Britain won't become a Roman province until many, many years later. Despite Caesar's success, though, while he's in Britain, Caesar's daughter Julia will die in childbirth, though. The one who had been married to Pompey to secure that alliance. And in 53 BC... Crassus, who probably needing an ego boost, seeing Caesar accomplish all these vast military campaigns, decides to try and do the same thing. And he will raise an army and march into the Middle East against the Parthians. And his army will be completely destroyed. Him and his son will be killed in battle. And essentially that will be the breaking moment for the triumvirate. And again, this is all while Caesar is essentially in Britain. On top of that, in 52 BC, the Gaelic leader of Vercingetorix emerges, and he will lead a large-scale rebellion against Caesar, where he's actually able to unify a bunch of these tribes in the common goal of defeating the Romans. And him and Caesar will have this cat-and-mouse game for a while, and eventually the Caesar will lay siege to Vercingetorix at Elysia, which is a hill fortress. And I'll take a moment just to talk about it real quick, just because it's such an amazing story. So Caesar, in traditional siege fashion, he creates a wall around Elysia, 
to besiege it. He doesn't want any of the Gauls coming in or out. However, during the construction process, Vercingetorix manages to get messengers out away from the Romans to call for support. Caesar, knowing this, goes, uh-oh, that's not going to be good, because as skilled as the Romans are, the Gauls are far more numerous than them. And so what Caesar does is he builds another wall, this one facing outward. So he has his soldiers in between two walls, one facing toward Elysia and one facing outwards. Eventually, these Gaelic reinforcements do arrive, and depending on the sources you read, they either number 80,000 or 500,000 strong, possibly toward the lower middle of that, that range. And somehow Caesar is able to fight back against attacks that are coming from within Elysia and from outside at the same time, where the, the Gauls almost break through, and there's just this heroic moment where Caesar throws on a scarlet red cloak and charges into battle along with his troops and is able to rally his men and defeat the Gauls. And one part of the siege has Vercingetorix realizing that the grain supplies aren't going to last forever in Elysia, so he sends out all the women and children out of the city and closes the gates behind them. Now, Caesar, having these civilians approaches him, knows exactly what Vercingetorix is trying to do. And also, having to worry about grain supplies will not let the civilians pass. And so essentially, you have all these civilians that end up dying in just the middle of this territory, this no man's land, because no side will want them in. Eventually, though, Caesar does defeat Vercingetorix and claim this massive victory over the Gauls. As a fun fact, if you've never seen it, I would definitely recommend looking at the HBO series Rome, which came out in 2005. And the first scene of the show is actually Vercingetorix surrendering to Caesar. And two of the characters that are the main characters in the show, named Lucius Verenus and Titus Pullo, are actually two soldiers that are mentioned just randomly by name in Caesar's memoirs of the Gaelic Wars. And so the show decided to make them the main characters, even though we have only one reference to their names. In It was during a battle, essentially, that they performed admirably. We don't have anything more beyond that of them. Uh, and it's, a, it's an amazing show. Essentially, it was HBO's first attempt at a Game of Thrones-type series. So if you like Game of Thrones, I would definitely check out that series. It was made by a bunch of well-meaning producers who tried to make it as historically accurate as possible. They still took liberties, of course, as you do with shows, but it is extremely well thought out and put together. So definitely recommend checking out that show. Going back, though, to the Gaelic Wars, as these these conflicts become known as, Caesar will kill over a million Gauls in this conflict, which is a lot of people by today's standards, but consider a world population that is much, much, much smaller than today's, and one million is a catastrophe for Gaul. And it has over 300 tribes being subjugated by Caesar and about 800 towns and cities being destroyed by Caesar. So Caesar not only conquers Gaul, but he obliterates it. And essentially Gaul will remain loyal to Rome for hundreds of years following this. Going back, though, to the death of Crassus, we have this breaking of the triumvirate, mainly because there's not three of them anymore. It's just the two of them. And Caesar attempts to arrange another marriage with Pompey, but Pompey refuses. And what happens then is that Pompey is appointed as sole consul as an emergency measure by the Senate, and then he will marry the daughter of a political opponent of Caesar. And this effectively ends any possibility of the triumvirate returning. 
or some form of it. Because, yeah, there's only two of them at this point. <laughs> it can't be a triumvirate. And so in 50 BC, so when Caesar is 50, easily thanks to those nice round numbers of his birth, <laughs> Pompey in the Senate will command Caesar to disband his army and return to Rome and say that your governorship has ended. You surrender your army. You come back here now. Caesar, though, fears that without his immunity as magistrate, that he would be prosecuted upon entering the city, especially after being accused of treason by Pompey. So Caesar sees this as a moment of decision, that he has to either agree and trust that he most likely will not go away free, or the other decision that he ends up making, which is to march on Rome. And so on January 10th in 49 BC, when Caesar is 51 years old, he will cross the Rubicon River, which served as the basically served as the northern boundary of Italy proper. That was the the no-go point. You could not bring an army any farther south of that without being considered a traitor. And so this is why we have the phrase crossing the Rubicon, because it's a moment of do or die. And he will cross with one legion of 5,000 troops, uh, the 13th Gemini, so the, the Gemini twins. And these are soldiers that will go on to serve throughout Caesar's campaigns. And that's the only reason I mentioned them by name is because they serve with distinction under Caesar. And they actually have quite an impressive history in and of themselves from the records that we have. So I'd encourage looking them up. Just It's pretty cool. Their symbol is also a lion. So that's pretty awesome. And Caesar will supposedly utter the phrase, the die is cast, or if you interpret later versions of it, depending on what translation you want to go with, it's let the die be cast, which is essentially saying that it is now in fate's hand to decide what happens from this point on, and he triggers a civil war. Pompey and the Senate will flee the city of Rome because Pompey will raise an army, but they're new recruits, and the Senate doesn't have a lot of confidence in these new troops, so they flee south. And Caesar hoped to capture Pompey and just end this whole thing in one fell swoop. But he's unsuccessful and Pompey is able to flee to Greece. And what Caesar would do next is appoint Mark Anthony, who we probably recognize from Cleopatra uh, later on. And that'll come into play here. He appoints Mark Anthony to lead Italy. Caesar will in turn march to Spain to defeat Pompey's allies who would not declare for Caesar. And he defeats them in rapid order and he returns east again to face Pompey, who has been gathering forces in Greece. And in July of 48 BC, the two would face off in two different battles, the first being Dracium, which Pompey wins against Caesar, but he's not able to deliver this decisive victory that would have ended the civil war then and there. But later that year, there's the Battle of Pharsalus, in which Caesar will win a decisive victory against Pompey, and Pompey has to flee Greece entirely for Egypt. Being somewhat secure in his leadership, defeating his main rival for the meantime, Caesar returns to Rome and he's appointed dictator with Mark Anthony serving as his master of the horse, essentially his right-hand command. And speaking of the title of dictator, in Roman society, in the Roman Republic, dictator was an elected position. That it was something that was seen as essentially a duty that someone, a noble citizen, would take on in times of crisis to lead Rome in an effective manner, in a method without all the convoluted rule systems of the consuls and all these other positions. And the idea was that someone, after being through this crisis, after completing the victory, would renounce that dictatorship. 
uh, this is where the hero Cincinnatus comes in, who is the prime example of that very ideal of Roman society. And that's where we get the name Cincinnati from, the city. From Cincinnatus, this man who was appointed dictator, then peacefully gave up his authority afterwards and became a, a folk hero, essentially, for the Roman people. So it's not like this is an unheard of thing in general. The method by which Caesar gets it, obviously, is not to be desired by Rome, but he does it. And he will see the he will oversee his own election for the second consulship that he runs. Funny enough, he wins that election. And after 11 days, he resigns his dictatorship. After this, he would be able to pursue Pompey to Egypt. Now, Egypt is in the middle of its own problems right now because there is a civil war going on between Ptolemy XIII and his sister wife, Cleopatra. And Pompey flees to Egypt because Egypt is nominally friendly to Rome. But Ptolemy, who is the ruling pharaoh, thinks that he can gain Caesar's favor by killing Pompey. And so when Pompey and his men arrive on Egyptian shores, the Egyptians murder him. And now when Caesar arrives, the Egyptians present him with a gift in the form of Pompey's head in a box with his signet ring. And Caesar is reportedly to have cried at the sight of seeing what was essentially his old friend dead. And so this doesn't exactly enamor the, mind you, 15-year-old pharaoh, Ptolemy Thirteenth to Caesar, while Caesar is staying in Alexandria, uh, this is where we get the famous story of Cleopatra having to sneak into Caesar's quarters rolled up in a, in a rug. And she snuck into Caesar's quarters because if she had been caught, she probably would have been killed by Ptolemy's supporters. Uh, if you've ever played the game Assassin's Creed, uh, we get you get to see this moment in uh, Origins in, where you help escort Cleopatra into see Caesar. And she in dramatic display, rolls out from the carpet as this young, beautiful woman who is about 22 at the time. And she essentially seduces Caesar. And by every historical account, she's extremely beautiful and is able to, not only with her own beauty and political cunning, I don't want to under, I don't want to understate that at all, that she's not only beautiful, but she's incredibly intelligent. And not only does this make her an effective player in this Egyptian civil war to begin with, but it also makes her a cunning ally for Caesar and someone who knows exactly how to get what she wants. And so she's extremely dangerous. And Caesar likes that. Uh, and so he allies himself with Cleopatra. As a result, you know, like I said, Caesar's going to become involved in the Egyptian civil war uh, and side with Ptolemy's sister. And he actually will defeat the pharaoh in 47 BC at the age of 53 at the Battle of the Nile. Soon after that battle, the pharaoh would drown while crossing the Nile. Caesar will then install Cleopatra, who again is 22 at the time, as ruler, and the two will celebrate their victory with a procession down the Nile. The two will have a, a love affair that lasts for several years. Cleopatra will visit Rome on numerous occasions, and she will actually give birth to Caesar's son, Caesarion. In 48 BC, so the following year, he is once again appointed dictator for one year, for a one-year term. And after spending the first few months of uh, the following year in Egypt, he will march through to Turkey and defeat Pontus, which is another rival kingdom of Rome, in quick order. And he will actually use this as an excuse to further insult Pompey, because Pompey had won several victories, and that's how he partially gained his fame in Rome. And Caesar says, ah, you know, they were so easy to defeat. Why did, you know, this is clearly why Pompey was so bad at his job, essentially, that he was able to defeat these easy people. 
uh, the following year, he will continue his campaigns into North Africa and finish off the last of Pompey's supporters under Cato, who would commit suicide following their defeat in order to not be captured by Caesar. And then he would continue on to Spain to pursue Pompey's sons to defeat them in Spain in 45 BC. So despite Pompey being dead, this civil war is not over yet. However, his victory in North Africa at the age of 54 and 46 BC, Caesar then is appointed dictator for another 10 years and was elected to the consulship in 46 and 45 BC. Unlike Sulla, though, who had made these vast lists and was ruthless against his political opponents, Caesar largely pardons most of those people who had opposed him in the Senate um, and in Rome and thus garnered great support from them. So as you can imagine, they're quite grateful to not be executed. And the Senate will bestow a number of honors upon Caesar as a thanks to him. Uh, Among those honors are great games and festivals along with the Roman triumph, the thing he had wanted originally, uh, which some considered in poor taste because it was meant to celebrate the victory over fellow Romans rather than a foreign enemy. So some people saw it as kind of like, eh, this isn't really too cool. Again, he's going back and forth campaigning. When he returns to Rome in 45 BC at the age of 55, he will file his will and name his nephew Gaius Octavius to be his heir and assume his name of Caesar. During his time as dictator, he will work on a number of social reforms, including distributing land and payment to almost 15,000 of his veterans, taking a census of Rome, encouraging and rewarding families who had more children, and limiting the luxury goods purchased by the rich. So he will actually say, you can't purchase so many things anymore. He will pursue management and elimination of debts, and he actually will pay off a quarter of those debts owned by the people of Rome. He will restructure the calendar, which this is probably one of the most long-lasting legacies of Caesar. Prior to this, the Roman calendar focused on a lunar cycle, following the movements of the moon. What he does is he moves the calendar over to the Egyptian style, which follows the movements of the sun. And he will add three extra months to the calendar year to adjust for this and make it easier for especially these farmers, these peasants, to reliably calculate when harvest season and planting seasons were. And this will become known as the Julian calendar, which starts in 45 BC. The calendar that we use today is started by Caesar. He will also dictate the creation of a police force, which did not previously exist at all in Rome. And he will extend Latin rights to the whole Roman world under his control, which is a big deal. It's essentially not quite the civil rights of its age because there's still slavery. Um, but essentially gives them voting power and the ability to be represented in the Senate. He will also be given several honors that include having coins bearing his image, a golden seat in the Senate, a statue among the kings of Rome, and the ability to wear triumphal clothing wherever he chose. That's all fine and dandy for Caesar, although his, his enemies will look at that as he's trying to make himself a king. All of those things sound very king-like. You know, having coins with your image, having a golden seat in the Senate, and having a statue among the kings of Rome kind of makes you look like a king. And as a part of Caesar's reforms measures, the Senate number, the number of members in the Senate, he will raise that number to 900 people, mostly to be filled with his partisans, with people that are loyal to him. Uh, And he will use that new power to pass most of those new laws that he wants, because essentially this is Senate stacking, (laughs) where essentially you expand the numbers. And you fill it with all your loyal people. There have been similar discussions, not for the same reason, but with 
the modern United States to try and expand the House of Representatives to more accurately reflect the populations of the United States. So this is not something that is a unique concept at all. He will also impose a mandatory term limit for governor, something that he abused left and right, but because he wanted to decrease the chance of another general rising to challenge him. So Caesar's not doing this all out of the good of his heart. He's doing this to make sure that no one else challenges him. And in February of 44 BC, he will be appointed dictator into perpetuity. So he's no longer going about these term limits. He is dictator for life, forever. So this really solidifies the anger against him by those who are going to conspire to kill him. And by the time of the Ides, which is the 15th, the middle of the month, so you can, it's not, there's not just the Ides of March. You can have the Ides of April. You can have the Ides of February. But on the Ides of March in 44 BC, several senators had conspired to assassinate Caesar during his appearance at a session of the Senate. Now, the plot's nearly undone when a worried conspirator actually notifies Mark Anthony of the plot the day before, but on his way to the Theater of Pompey, which is where the Senate would be holding session that day, supporters of the conspirators actually intercept Mark Anthony before he can enter the Senate chambers to warn Caesar and keep him occupied while the events unfold inside. So they basically prevent Mark Anthony, another loyal, and a couple of his aides that could have jeopardized the plot from entering and nullify that factor. And the way that the assassination unfolds, there are several different accounts. Uh, some, Most of the popular ones are actually made well after the fact. Uh, the most popular example, the, the person who wrote the account wasn't born until after Caesar died. So this is not a clear-cut case of something happening. There is, however, one account that is actually written in the year following the assassination where the gentleman who wrote it actually interviewed people who were there and, you know, put stock in that what you will. But it could be one of the more accurate accounts they have out there. But by all the different accounts, the first action of the assassination is when one of the senators named Tilius Kimber, he will be the first one to confront Caesar and he will ask about his exiled brother who had been exiled by Caesar and ask about the ability for him to come back. And Caesar will dismiss him, but Kimber responds by grabbing him and pulling down his tunic, his ceremonial robes, and Caesar reacts in, as you can imagine, a hostile manner and asks, what violence is this? What are you doing to me? And another senator will try and stab him, but will miss as Caesar grabs the man's arm. And it's at that point that the other senators join in. And we're not talking about seasoned assassins. We're not talking about skilled soldiers who had wielded blades before. We're talking about senators who had kind of nervously joined together in a coup to try and kill the dictator. And so this mess is not a clean affair. And there are around 60 senators that will take part in the assassination. And 60 people all trying to clamber for one person is a messy affair. There's actually two examples of probably the best depictions of how this would have gone that I can think of. Uh, the Discovery Channel actually did a documentary on how the assassination would have gone out with that many people trying to all get Caesar at once. And again, going back to HBO's Rome, probably has the most realistic scene of what that would have looked like. It's gruesome, it's brutal, but that's the part that makes it the most accurate that this again is not something that's this heroic event 
it's a bunch of people stabbing a 66 year old man a 56 year old man sorry to death so it's not this clean cut affair and by different accounts caesar will receive over 20 wounds in this vicious assault and not all of them are lethal lethal because again these aren't skilled people they're slashing at him hacking at him and during this commotion mark anthony who is still outside at this point essentially realizes what's going on he's able to flee the scene which you know some might say was cowardly but it saved his life you know he doesn't know how many people are involved and so he probably would have been killed along with caesar and this is where we kind of get the biggest discrepancy of events the traditional method of caesar's death is that marcus brutus who is one of the conspirators is the last to deliver a blow to caesar this is where we have this the shakespearean of line of a two brute and you brutus but according to different accounts one brutus might not have even said the line two we don't even know if brutus actually was able to stab caesar at all and the account that i mentioned that was put together right after the fact has Brutus not even able to stab Caesar because he injures himself with the knife. And there's another account that states that Caesar is too injured to even have uttered the line itself. So it's most likely a Shakespearean uh, dramatization of the event to make it more infamous, but that's the, the line that's stuck throughout history. Caesar lays dead, though, and by one account, he covers his face with his tunic to hide what has happened to him. And he dies there on the Senate floor, and the conspirators run through the seat, the seat, the they run through the streets of Rome, proclaiming what they have done. They've said that we have achieved freedom, but they're met with silence as most of the citizens had hidden their home from them. And Caesar's body would lay there for nearly three hours until officials who were loyal to him gathered his body and prepared for his cremation. Prior to and during the funeral, Mark Anthony and other politicians who loved Caesar, because again, throwing games and giving poor people land, made Caesar a hero to essentially what we can think of as the middle class and lower people of Rome. And so Mark Anthony, this is again the classic Shakespearean line of Romans, lend me your ears. Uh, he drives up the crowd and the middle class and he drives them to anger. And this forces the conspirators to flee Rome for Greece because they are not welcome. They did not receive the reactions that they were expecting from the people. Instead of having a joyful population that is seeing a tyrant killed, they have an angry population who wants them dead for murdering their leader. And that's essentially where the main story of Caesar will end. But Caesar leaves this massive legacy beyond his death. Caesar had initiated many of the reforms that would continue on into the imperial era what followed was another civil war against the conspirators Brutus and Cassius, who were ultimately defeated in Greece by Mark Anthony and Octavian. Then, after disagreement over power, another civil war follows between Octavian and the dynamic duo of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. This, in turn, concludes with the suicide of Mark Anthony and the likely murder of Cleopatra by Octavian. And Caesar will pave the way for the final downfall of the Roman Republic to become the Roman Empire under the first Emperor Augustus, his nephew Octavian. He will also further enforce the notion that military loyalty was the true power in Rome, that if you had the loyalty of the army, you could do whatever you wanted. And This becomes a precedent for good and for bad later on in the imperial era. His actions helped to centralize and streamline the political structure of Rome that allowed it to aggressively expand in later years, and 
probably the most stunning legacy of Caesar that many people don't even realize is that the title of Caesar would be one that would continue throughout time, being used by the Roman emperors themselves, but also the Kaisers in Germany. So like Kaiser Wilhelm in World War I, Kaiser is the German translation of Caesar. The Tsar in Russia is the translation of Caesar. And that is Caesar's legacy, that if anything, in time, the conspirators that murdered Caesar, despite him seizing power by force of arms, ended up being damned by history. In Dante's Inferno, the inner circle of hell, you have Brutus and Cassius in the center of hell for being traitors, for being betrayers. So not only did Brutus and Cassius get damned by the people of Rome, but they essentially become martyrs for all time, and they don't achieve anywhere close to the legacy they hope to achieve. So Caesar's legacy not only lived on in the Roman Empire itself, but throughout world history. And that's probably the greatest legacy of Caesar. So that's where we're going to end this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the ride. It was a long one, I know that. But I hope you enjoy it. Caesar's life was quite exciting. And just as, again, a friendly reminder, you can help support the podcast at patreon.com slash travelinghistorian. Anything helps. Uh, We currently have a giveaway for a hardcover book of Peter Heather's The Fall of the Roman Empire, which is quite a wonderful read. And you can go follow me on Twitter at Augustus underscore underscore Casey and give me your thoughts and any ideas that you would like to see put in place on the podcast.